Okay, welcome everybody to episode 54, Stem Cell Lineage Tracing. I am Dr. Christopher Visano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, man? Happy fall, Yos. Yeah, uh, just kind of recovering from the post visit here in New York City. Um, yeah, man, pope, a lot of poping going on. Pope, yeah, pope, pope. Seemed like that it dominated all the news. Uh, I'm glad he didn't talk uh, about stem cells as being uh, in any of his, you know, uh, yeah. address to Congress or anything like that. So apparently, it's not on the radar screen anymore. So that's good news. Did you see the Fiat at all? Did you see the cavalcade, the, the Pope uh, driving around town or no? You stay clear. Yeah, yeah. It's funny to watch all those big cars uh, driving around his little Fiat. So that was funny. Um, yeah, Fiat got the ultimate marketing uh, yeah. exposure, right? I yes. mean, you can't get any better than that. Especially in light of this uh, Volkswagen issue going on in the news. So uh, uh, yeah, we yeah, may yeah, talk about that. What a brutal mess that is. Yeah, I so wonder if they're going to survive. Maybe we'll talk about it later. There was a, the art and like Nature wrote an article about this too. Wow. So, okay. Okay. All right. So, so it's uh, making the science round. Yeah, man. So um, we are 54, episode 54, and we're talking about lineage tracing. I was talking to Yosef before we started. We were talking about the name of the episode, and I was like, well, I don't know if a lot of people are going to know lineage tracing. And then Yosef pointed out that, you know, with you can do lineage tracing in your family to, you know, trace your family pedigree and family tree history. And that's exactly what our guest, Dr. Andrew Cohen, uh, attempts to do, uh, he's an engineer and he, he builds software that you can use with uh, microscopy videos so we can image cells growing and watch them divide, divide, divide and form all the little daughter, sister, daughter cells. And so Andy will take that information and, and he takes those videos and he turns it into information that's useful and he finds out here's the parent and here's all of its children and this is what they turned into. So we're going to talk to Andy about, you know, how he developed that and kind of, you know, where its applications are. It's pretty awesome, Yos. We talked about the paper. It was in Stem Cell Reports last time. Um, the videos are, are pretty cool to watch. Yeah, we'll post the video on the uh, website and uh, with the email that goes out with this episode. So uh, hopefully everybody subscribed who's listening out there. If not, go to stemcellpodcast.com and uh, throw in your email. We only email you once every two weeks, so twice a month. So not it's not going to ruin your spam levels at all. So uh, no, no, no. Up. And I, I find I find it. I would find it to be interesting. I might be biased, but because it just gives me all the information at one shot. I don't. If I forget, it's right there. So you also said um, stemcellpodcast.com. So we are the Stem Cell Podcast, the official podcast of the uh, International Society for Stem Cell Research. Uh, go to isscr.org right now. They have a bunch of things going on. There's a meeting. There's a bunch of. They have these little uh, kind of international symposiums. They have one in Suzhou, Suzhou. How do you say that? Suzhou, China. Yeah, that's going on this month. There's one in Dresden, Germany. It's February. It looks awesome. I'm, I'm hoping I can get out there. Um, you can register now. You can submit an abstract. They have nominations for their uh, board of directors and for their awards that they give out. Every meeting is open now. So you guys can go on their website and, and find all that information uh, out and go there right now. Um, let's see, Yos. We have uh, questions. Everybody submit their questions for uh, Stem Cell Awareness Day, which is October 14th, which will be episode 55. Anything Stem Cell you want to know, so just send it to us on Facebook, on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cell Podcast at gmail.com. Um, or you know you can go to the website and leave um, you know leave a voicemail. We got some we got some questions in, so keep them coming in. Um, let's see here, Yos. Yeah, um, yeah. With the questions concerned, the question try try and make them specific, not like uh, 
what can stem cells do? You know, just something specific, maybe a targeted disease that you're interested in or a specific topic, not just something general like, uh, you know, like I said, that question. Uh, but uh, we'll definitely get to them and uh, should make for an interesting uh, user feedback. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, this is your opportunity. You know, some things you might just not understand or you want to understand something a little more specific. So um, just, just send whatever whatever it is. As crazy as it might sound, sound excuse me, just send it in and Joseph and I will do our best to, to answer that. So um, let's see. I guess that's all I have. So let's, let's start right now. Oh, before I do this, I think I talked about it last time, the Science Roundup, which we're going to get into in a second, um, where we're, we have this new thing on Twitter where we're just, we, every day, we'll put three or four papers out that we that we talked about on the Roundup with the hashtag Sci Roundup, S-C-I Roundup, and Paul Tazar, um, a case Western there, uh, you know, started to do that with his lab meeting when the papers they talk about, they hashtag with the same hashtag, so we're going to amalgamate all of our papers on, into one kind of feed on Twitter. So if you guys uh, miss anything, just if you subscribe to us on Twitter, you should see uh, the papers that we talk about will pop up throughout throughout every day, three to four papers at a time. So let's get into the uh, science roundup, which is brought to you by Thermo Fisher. Now, Thermo is doing their 24 hours of stem cells again, Yosef. We did it last year, remember? Yep, yep. We did, Yosef and I did a presentation, and it's the third annual, and it's this literally a 24-hour um, event where they have talks um, all all day, all night long on on different stem cell topics, and it's it's kind of li- it's live. Like it goes on on that day. Um, they they put the talks up, and then there's a kind of a live um, discussion. So if you're a speaker, the speakers will be available, and you get to submit your questions and get them answered. There's live panel discussions. Um, there's access to virtual training labs. Uh, there's a lot of cool things, and so um, you can you can go. Checking out Thermo Fisher's website. It's called 24 Hours of Stem Cells. We just got a new banner. We're going to put it up on a new website that should be live pretty soon. So if you if you go there to stemcellpodcast.com, click on Thermo's banner, and it'll take you. Register there. It's free. Registration is free, and you get to hear all these talks on demand. It's a, it's a pretty good deal. So I suggest everybody go check out 24 Hours of Stem Cells by Thermo Fisher. With that, yo, it's my man. Let's kick off the science roundup. By the way, before I start, I just think it's so cool, uh, the technology that people are doing these online conferences and also the Tazar Lab, you doing like hashtags into their lab meetings. I, I just love uh, the fact I know, that, right? you know, that it's it, all comes together. I love it too. Yeah. So, so anyhow, uh, starting off with a cancer cell, uh, pa- papers talking about, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, uh, combined with anticoagulant drugs can slow the growth of gliomas by causing the cancer cells to eat them themselves or what's known as autophagy do you say faggy or fade i say phagy i yeah, don't really it sounds know a little better is. than faggy anyhow so uh they did a combinatorial screen in mice uh that had gliomas in them and found that this combo in- induces autophagy so uh you can find that in cancer cell there was a current biology uh, study uh, identifying calendar cells. There's all sorts of cells. These calendar mirror, cells. Yeah, mirror neurons and now calendar cells. Uh, these cells respond to according to how much daylight there is. So they are located in the pars tuberalis, which is under the pituitary gland. And the activity of these cells changes dramatically over the year with different proteins produced in the winter than uh, the summer months. So uh, you can find that in current biology. 
Halloween and calendar yeah, cells. calendar cells. Uh, I know you got to wonder if they're incorporate if you could uh, incorporate them into your iPhone calendar. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, <laughs> scientific reports uh, study showing that the distinctive flavor of Chablis or Chardonnay. Are you a big wine drinker? White wine. I, drinker? I love my wine. Chablis yeah. uh, cannot be achieved without a specific type of yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Uh, I probably ruined that name, but uh, very that was popular pretty good. Yeast. I think uh, usually uh, the terroir. Terroir. I, how do you say that? It's not terror. Terror or terroir of the uh, which refers sure. to the soil or the, the earthiness. Yeah, the t- topography and the farming methods, uh, and even plant genetics. Uh, so basically, the overall flavor of the wine. Uh, is usually based on those things, but they found that the genetic differences in yeast populations from Sauvignon Blanc grapes in six major wine uh, growing regions of New Zealand, uh, they found that these differences, uh, they tested the genetic difference in, and differences, and they found that it influences the taste and smell of the wine and found that roughly half of the chemical compounds that determines a wine's unique traits come from the yeast during ferma- fermentation. And they found uh, that the most of the fruity notes come from the yeast, the type of yeast that's in the in really? the wine. So yeah, uh, add that to your terroir uh, repertoire. Um, another scientific re- report study showing that uh, in colonies of stem cells that adhere to dishes, uh, that the outside of the colonies uh, differentiate first. And so the center's sort of this like undifferentiated hub, uh, which makes sense. I've sort of seen that in the dish as well. They suggest that uh, the developmental decisions are influenced by the local environment geometry of the colonies. So that's wait, in scientific wait, yo, reports. Who, do you know the author on this thing? I forget her name. I think it may be the woman who uh, presented at Saratoga. Um, remember? No, that was um, Horse, Valerie Horsley, who was at. Can I get? Can I just say one thing here? Isn't that kind of obvious, though? Yeah, I don't know. It's in scientific reports. It's not. I mean, because like I was just saying, problem. like, because yeah. All right. Anyway, it's something anyway, everyone's uh, probably observed who who works. With yeah, God. things dip from the edge out, and that's yeah. why you can pick the centers out. But yeah. no one ever thought to publish it. So yeah. for them, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, there was a neurology study showing that dizzy spells that occur after standing for a few minutes might be an early warning of neurological disease. They looked Great. at what's known as orthostatic hypertension or a drop in blood pressure within three minutes of standing in medical records of 230 people over 10 years and found that people with orthostatic hypertension had a death rate of 64%, which is ridiculous. And they found that 35% developed a degenerate neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's or dementia. So if you're uh, getting a little dizzy after three minutes of standing, it may be uh, time to visit your local neurologist. I wonder if it's like there's a criteria like like this, if it happens all the time or randomly, you know what I mean? Cause yeah. every once in a while that happens to me, it doesn't happen all the time. Well, I'll get up and like get a little like yeah. faint headed, but, but it's is, not like every single time you yeah, get up. No, this is like yeah. you're all standing right. for three minutes and then it oh, happens. Yeah, yeah. So okay. yeah. Okay, uh, so 
uh, there was a nature genetics study looking at uh, 9,500 people in 14 European countries and found a strong genetic connection between genes that boost height and those associated with lower amounts of body fat, which may explain why people in northern European countries tend to be taller and slimmer than other Europeans. So uh, you can find that nature genetics. Uh, speaking of nature, they came out with their STAP report. I'm not sure if you're going to cover that uh, in your end of the roundup, but uh, they found found that the the stap cells were just contamination which is sort of obvious but uh they really nailed down the genetics to show that they uh were identical and i guess there were some trophoblast stem cells in there too just yeah a, just a huge mess so hopefully this is the end of the whole stap uh story and unfortunately uh we did lose a major uh all-star of science in the whole mess but uh yoshiki sasai May you rest in peace. So um, there's a nature medicine study repurposing an old drug for arthritis called salsalate, uh, which reverses tau-related dysfunction in an animal model of frontotemporal dementia. So the drug uh, prevented the accumulation of acetylated tau in the brain and protected against cognitive impairments similar to those found in Alzheimer's disease. They administered the drug after the disease onset and uh, found that um, salsalate can inhibit the enzyme P300 in the brain, which is elevated in Alzheimer's disease and triggers acetylation. So a clinical trial is already underway for progressive supranuclear palsy, which is another tau-mediated neurological condition. So uh, pretty exciting finding in nature medicine. Very cool, very yeah. cool. There was a science paper showing that the adult mouse brain stem cells asymmetrically segregate aging factors between the mother and the daughter cells. So apropos of this episode, yep. uh, the endoplasmic reticulum is a diffusion barrier that is responsible for this uh, strength of the barrier and uh, weakens with advanced age, which leads to reduced asymmetry of damaged brain, uh, sorry, of damaged protein segregation with the increasing age of the stem cells. So this could be responsible for the reduced regeneration capacity in the aged brain, which is probably why it made it into science. Um, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, I know you and I are big fans of the NFL. There was a concussion legacy foundation study showing that 87 out of the 91 former NFL players' brains who were donated to them uh, tested positive for CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is an abnormal buildup of tau in the brain. So uh, scary, scary news on the concussion front. Uh, that is so scary, man. Yeah, I know. I don't think Jeez. I would have let, at this point, I don't think I would let man. my kid play football, hypothetical kid play football. Um, there was a neuron study showing that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is crucial to punishment decisions. So uh, they found that by altering the brain activity via transcranial magnetic stimulation in this region, they could change how a subject punishes a hypothetical defendant without changing the amount of blame placed on the defendant. So this is sort of the, like the decision that, you know... I guess if you're a judge, this was this is the region that uh, you would place uh, punishment onto, not uh, blame. So uh, you can find that neuron. 
pretty cool study. That now, is cool. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Kathy Neacon from the Francis Crick Institute in London applied for uh, to the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority uh, for a license to do gene editing via CRISPR in human embryos for up to 14 days upon which the embryo will be destroyed. So we'll see if she gets that uh, wow. permission. Uh, and finally, I'll end with a nature, actually two quick ones, nature communication study, uh, studying the interaction between oligodendrocytes and neurons in a two chamber system, showing that, uh, when they reach each other through these holes in the two membrane system, uh, and touch each other, there are proteins called prohibitins in the glial leading edge that are crucial for myelination. So you can find that nature communications. And finally, I had to add this one in. Uh, nature communications again where they developed a way to use ultrasonic waves to activate neurons they're calling this sonogenetics sort of like optogenetics but using <laughs> sound instead and this doesn't have the problem of uh, light scattering and having to implant a fiber optic cable so they used worms for this and injected micro bubbles of gas which they found uh, that the membrane ion channel trip four can respond to ultrasound pressure waves and then use this channel and other neurons to respond to it. So now they're working on a mammalian uh, model of this, but it's it's kind of cool. You have to inject these little micro bubbles and then apply the sound waves, sort of like in a, an ultrasound, um, but using uh, genetic, you know, using ion channels to uh, using sound to activate ion channels. So uh, sonogenetics could be a new uh, form of activating neurons soon. So uh, look out for that. What's on your end? Cool, man. Very cool. Um, so before before I get into the stem cell thing, uh, the stem cell stuff, this this Volkswagen thing was nuts. I mean, I don't know what you what you really saw about it, Yost, but basically they the Volkswagen they have diesel cars, right? And the diesel is worse for the environment than than the regular gas emissions. And what they found, what they were you know, shown to, to have done was basically manipulate their software so that it would register lower emissions than what's actually coming out of the car. So it's like incredibly devious. So when they when then so there was some you know they were you know I guess some agencies were picking random companies to start testing, uh, you know, just to see if they were compl- compl- you know complying. Uh, compliant with the, with the, with everything and all this stuff. So uh, they when they tested like some Jettas, they were fifteen to thirty five times greater nitric oxide emissions, and then some of the Passats were twenty times greater. I mean, it wasn't even close. And it, it's it's really really worrying because I guess diesel contains carbon dioxide and nitric oxide uh, emissions, which are both obviously have serious health effects. And it's also a precursor. Nitric oxide is a precursor to ground level ozone, and we know what that can do. So um, the the worst part is how they're in trouble. How they marketed this. It's like if you were a vegan and you were buying tofurkey or whatever, and it was actual meat in there because they. Yeah, that's what it was. (laughs) Yeah, they they market they market it it like it was uh, you know clean energy for the environment and in fact they're killing people and killing the environment (laughs) so nice work volkswagen (laughs) Um, so anyway the stem cell stuff uh this came out i was i was reading this was in stem cell reports but basically lanza the company lanza announces an ips cell production for human therapy so it's basically stem cell manufacturing so you know we know the ips cells can be generated from patient skin or hair or somatic cell 
Um, and this can be done in the lab. But in order to you know achieve this uh, clinically and therapeutically, we need to do we need to understand the manufacturing process, you know, which is a very different process than at scale than it is in the lab. And so um, this is what the biotech company Lonsis has accomplished, providing an A to Z manufacturing process under the FDA good manufacturing practice standard that can save time, uh, money, and ensure safety. So the banks offer IPS cells that are genetically matched to large segments of the population so manufacturing can benefit from economies of scale. So... The thing about IPS is, in theory, you could take it from any patient and make the differentiated cell and put it back. But if you're doing that, uh, uh, you know, clinically, we talked about this, you know, that would take a lot of time. Like, and it's probably a lot of regulation, you know, to take your skin cell out and generate the cell type, put it back in. There's a lot of like, you know, a lot of FDA regulation if you have to do it on an individual basis. So this is the like a, a different way to approach it. They make banks of iPS cells that are genetically matched to large segments of the population to help limit the uh, HLA the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. The whole so, so they they did that. Uh, I'll put both links up: the link to this article and the link to the actual paper and stem cell reports. Uh, this week is is it this week um, or next week? October fifth is next week, right? Yeah. So that's the week of the Nobel Prize announcements. Oh, boy. So um, they'll be out. Uh, the, um, physiology and medicine is on Monday the 5th uh, at 11.30 a.m. at the earliest. And the rumors dun, 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 the rumors are that uh, Dowda, Jennifer Dowda, will win for CRISPR technology. Um, I was thinking she should get some, she should get it. I, I, I mean, CRISPR and optogenetics are like the biggest things <laughs> Uh, yeah, since yeah, IPS so that, that's and IPS. It'll, it'll be, you know, for chemistry, it'll be... I'm sorry, that's for chemistry. I said for chemistry, Dowda will win for the... Well, well, supposedly will win for CRISPR and physiology and medicine. They have uh, some other predictions. I'll put the predictions up, but we'll talk about that when they come out, and that'll be next week. You Sounds talked cool. about the stat crap. That's mm. dead, so I don't need to go into that. They definitely cheated. Nice work. <laughs> Let's see here. Um, the, speaking of the Pope, I put this in for the Pope, Pope, Pope. Because all I saw was Popo Pope. So the Vatican will host a conference on stem cells and other regenerative medicine. This is the third time they're going to host a conference. It'll be held in April. Uh, hopefully they'll invite me so I can go to Rome. <laughs> and then uh, the goal of the event is, you know, to engage in discussions about the potential for adult stem cells, adult being the key word, and other ethical cellular therapies to treat cancer diabetes and other uh, debilitating medical conditions and diseases so it's you know it's just for their way of 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 pushing the agenda of adult stem cells uh maybe they talk about ips cells as well since they're generated from adult i'm not sure i've never been there but when it happens we'll find out what's going on i think the next paper is really the most one of the most probably i don't know this could be a breakthrough upon breakthroughs. It's one of the most like exciting studies to come out in a while, and it's out of the lab of Feng Zhang, who is really the CRISPR guru, and uh, it's in cell, and it's called C. This the title is CPF1 is a single RNA guided endonuclease of a class two CRISPR-Cas system. So everyone's like, what? So basically, we use CRISPR, uh, this technology, to basically genetically engineer right it allows you to create you know fix mutations introduce mutations chop out pieces of dna and re re kind of hook them back up together and so in this new study they search through these hundreds of crispr systems in different types of bacteria which is crazy right they're searching for enzymes with useful properties that could be you know could be engineered for use in human cell human cells and they found two promising candidates 
And the one was CPF1 from this bacterial species, Acidaminococcus or something like that. Hmm. All right. So they, they then started studying the CPF1, and they found now that you can use it for genetic engineering, and it has significant, significant advances over the first generation that's currently being used. First, um, I won't get into all. Actually, just let me tell you the most, I think, the most significant one. So you know when these enzymes cut DNA? They, they used the ones previous being used, they cut and they left them blunt-ended. In other words, they would cut DNA and then the two pieces would have to be kind of blunt ligated back together. There were no overhangs, right? Mm-hmm. And blunt, uh, blunt ends often undergo mutations as they're rejoined. It's, 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 kinda, it's not as efficient when you, when, you, when you kind of force two things together. This new enzyme leaves overhangs. So it'll now allow for a much more efficient rejoining or re, you know, ligation, if you will, recombination that's much less mutation prone. So you'll get a much higher efficiency and much less mutation uh, that, that exists. And that can, that can increase efficiency for this technology uh, incredibly. So there's a, they, I, I have this other – I have the main paper and I'm going to put a link up to something that, dis, that kind of explains the paper in a little more lay language. And in that little description, it tells you the four – advantages over this new method and uh it's going to be awesome man fang zang is just killing it out there man yeah. for everyone that don't know Sounds uh, cool. go ch- check that out i think he's a nice fellow if i'm not if I'm a robertson investigator if i'm not mistaken um okay you know what i found joseph i found this paper in nature remember when sean morrison came on the show at the issr meeting he was all amped up about visualizing the bone yes, marrow yes yes he, he was said it was like reading the newspaper or something it, it's out and it's nuts. You got to check it out. It's in nature. Deep imaging of bone marrow shows non-dividing stem cells are mainly perisinusoidal. I don't understand really what that means, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think it talks about the hematopoietic stem cell niche. The uh-huh. point here is that now he's able to look in to a bone and check out the niche and look at the stem cells and see you. Dude, the pictures are crazy. I mean, they're nuts. Um, you guys got to check it out. Unfortunately, you'll need access to nature to check it out. But... Um, it's unbelievable. So he he's able to visualize what the marrow, the bone marrow looks like, and from that he you know comes to these conclusions about the hematopoietic stem cell niche. You could uh, also really, you could also hear him at the end of our uh, Sweden interviews. Uh, he's at the end of part two. So uh, yeah, he is, and he was yeah. real pumped up. Yeah, he was. Why. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, all right, so this is in cell stem cell hematopoietic differentiation is required for initiation of acute myeloid leukemia. So I guess mutations in AML or acute, um, acute myeloid leukemia-associated oncogenes often arise in hematopoietic stem cells, and then that promotes the acquisition of these leukemia stem cell phenotypes. Um, but, you know, I guess as these leukemic or leukemia stem cells often share features of lineage-restricted progenitors, the relative contribution of differentiation status of these to transformation is unclear. So that's what they that's what they were kind of the, what they were questioning here. Um, and so what they found is that myeloid differentiation to these GMPs or granulocyte macrophage progenitors is required for these stem cell formation and AML initiation. Um, and then they just go on, you know, the, the conclusions just kind of follow suit. So it's a, just a detailed uh, kind of description of what happens with the stem cell in this AML and how, you know, the differentiation process process and things like this. I've been seeing a lot of these, you know, stem cells and cancers, stem cells and all this out now. You know, I feel like it goes in waves. It's like, you know, I remember it was really big. Then I kind of, I didn't really hear about it a lot. Now I'm hearing about it a lot again. We, we, we talked about it with, uh, you know, the Scott, about what Scott Dylan, what they're doing at Stem Centrics out there. 
so uh, I hope I hope that it bears some fruit because it's a very interesting idea, and I really it makes a lot of sense, you know, intuitively. So yeah. let's see where that goes. Um, generation of self-renewing hepatoblasts from human embryonic stem cells by chemical approaches. This is from Wen Lin Li, and this is in Stem Cells Translational Medicine. Um, and so here um, they were able to they, – they, this group, I guess, developed a, a chemically defined condition for mouse hematoblast self-renewal. Um, this, in this study, they efficiently generate hepatoblasts from human cells now using a stepwise induction strategy. And obviously, hepatoblasts can be kind of – you can – freeze them down and then rethaw them and hepatoplasts would give hepatoblasts would give rise to liver and everybody knows why we want liver cells to be made so yeah. it's just another advance in creating these pre-liver cells or liver precursor cells nice. from human embryonic stem cells nice um all right let's stop there and let us move um to the interview so we have enough time with andy so the interview portion of the stem cell podcast is brought to you by stem cell technologies i told everybody last episode about the new uh, tool that stem cell technologies has i've already used it a couple times i know my students have as well uh it's pretty cool um you can um uh basically if you are doing any sort of pluripotent stem cell research uh, you can go here and kind of follow the tree diagram to answer what you want to do so if you're doing cryopreservation and you want to know what reagents to use or what you should do you click on the cryopreserve a uh, little tab and a little pick picture pops up and it kind of walks you through your thought process so you can check them out they have five different ones up you can go to stemcell.com slash go psc so stemcell.com slash go psc click on those things print them out hang them up in the lab hang them up in your room hang them up in your office whatever you got to do um and go check them out from there all right yo so let us uh let us bring andy on Okay, so let's now, uh, I'm going to introduce briefly our guest for episode 54. Uh, so our guest for the Stem Cell Podcast today is Dr. Andrew Cohen, who's associate professor, excuse me, I got ahead of myself, associate <laughs> professor at Drexel University. Uh, so um, Andy did his uh, PhD right around the corner from me. I'm in uh, Albany right now, or actually I'm in Rensselaer technically, and he did his PhD at RPI or the Rensselaer Polytech Institute and what we're going to talk to Andy about today is his work in trying to help us biologists make sense of certain things. And so he has a skill set that's unique, I think unique to any guest we've had on. I'm going to let him explain it because he can do it better than me. And you know, um, for everyone out there that's studying cell biology, Yosef and I know this in particular, you look down the microscope and you're amazed at what cells are actually doing we can watch cells now. We put a little window into their world and we can watch how they behave. And they do some crazy stuff in culture. They bounce around, they divide, they split, they reach out, they migrate, they interact. And all of that information is incredibly important when we're trying to understand stem cells and cells and how they behave. And so Andy has really developed these techniques and algorithms to really track this and, and quantitate it in ways that's really taking it to the next level. So I'm going to now bring him on and tell us about that. Andy, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Hey, thanks, Chris and Yosef. Thanks for having me. So, okay, so can you just introduce yourself as a scientist to the audience? Give them a little background as to, you know, your training and, and, and what, what, you're, what you're doing now. So, yeah, actually, I, I'll say as a disclaimer, I guess I'm not a scientist. I'm actually an engineer. Um, and I've been, I started at Rensselaer Polytech, RPI, when I was 17 as an electrical engineer. And uh, here I am a millennial later. I'm still in the same department, electrical and computer engineering. 
Um, I switched halfway, and, and maybe later I'll tell you the story of, of how that switch came to be uh, from electrical engineering to computer engineering, even though it's the same department. Um, and let's see, what have I done? I've, I've worked in industry a bunch. I'm really a computer guy. Um, so I've, I've spent some time at Intel doing hardware design, working on microprocessors. I spent some time at Microsoft building the operating systems, graphics, and networking. Um, and I, I'd say the reason that I ended up where I am today is probably due to a guy named Badri Roysom, who's at Rensselaer. Uh, he's actually at University of Houston now. Um, I walked into his office one day looking for a master's project, and he handed me this book, The Nature of Light and Color and Open Air. <laughs> and uh, he just sort of sparked my everything. And it was computer graphics, and it was image processing, and it turned into later uh, cell biology. And uh, what I really liked the most about the biology and what drew me to that was it's the hardest application I've come across. Um, and, and so that's where I kind of ended up doing all my work. So it's the hardest application you've come across. So that's interesting. So now here you are. Um, at least I, I've, I met Andy through his collaborations with Sally Temple, who directs the Neural Stem Cell Institute here. And, you know, I think now we'll transition into to how, uh, um, you know, this is, you know, you're working with stem cells. And, Yosef, I try to explain to people about, you know, we call them clones, uh, cell clones. People don't understand. When they think of clone, I feel like they immediately think of, like, you know, Star cloning, Wars. A, cloning cow or, you know, like Dolly the Sheep <laughs> or something, you know, when they hear clone and they get like weirded out. But a clone is not necessarily such in, I mean, it could be, but in our clone cells, you know, one cell will divide and turn into many different cells and that composition it makes up is a clone. And so we try to understand how one cell turns into others and so forth. So I guess, Annie, t- take us into a little bit of how, you know, how you how you started to think about ways you can better kind of follow them and what kind of information you can get. So, yeah, I, I, for me, the, the clone really is the family tree, is, is, is how family I think tree, of it as I love an engineer. That. Yep. Um, and the way I came into it was really not from the low-level image processing, but uh, from the analysis part. So we started out by looking at when we deal with cell, how cells behave over time, um, my PhD thesis, and I, I, I kind of came back to my thesis later in my career. I, I took some years off to uh, go write operating systems. But my PhD thesis was about how do we, what math do we use to measure how cells behave over time? And the, the key to that is that like, I don't want to average cell behavior because there's so much heterogeneity. There's so much high dimensionality. And most of the math that we have to look at this data just can't work with these, you know, I think of them as, I think of it as multidimensional time sequences, right? So we're measuring over time, we measure the state of a cell and we get lots of different measurements. We get its location in space, we get its texture, we get fluorescent readouts from the microscope. And how do we combine all that in a way that lets us accurately uh, compare what cells are doing uh, among different cells or under different conditions? So that's where I started and, and we got to the point where we were able, when we had an isolated cell, we were able to, to make some really great things or to learn some great things about it. Like we could predict very accurately what its fate was going to be after it divided just by watching how it behaved. Where that led was this, this idea that, that cells don't grow up in isolation, right? What did I say once? It takes a village to raise a clone, <laughs> right? Or it takes some, something like that, right? They happen, they want to be dense. They, they need, uh, 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 one of the biologists I work with, a guy named Francisco Gomez, said they need love. 
right? They want to touch each other and they want to interact. And to be able to extract the measurements that I needed to do the kind of math that I wanted to do, I needed to be able to accurately delineate the individual cells while they were interacting with each other, while they were right pressed up against each other. And it turns out that's really hard over time. So they're dividing, they're pressed up against. Sometimes we have a microscope that's capturing images in 2D and cells are crawling underneath each other and dividing. And, and how do you deal with that? How do you work with that type of ambiguity and complexity? And that's really where we, we started to realize that this cell lineaging problem was such a fun one. You know, I think uh, we may need to uh, give a little context for what we're talking about today. So one of the first sort of arguments that Chris and I had when he was in the lab was, what is the definition of a stem cell? And I remember him and I went back and forth on this and him coming out of Sally's lab, he pretty much schooled me and was like, uh, stem cell is something that uh, replicates and creates something other than itself. So I think we should step back and at least dis, dis, define some of the terms like sym- symmetric division versus asymmetric division. So when we talk about a stem cell, um, one that symmetrically divides and creates a perfect clone of itself or one that creates a daughter cell that is different of, of itself. Does that, does that make sense uh, in terms of like uh, what you're studying or... How can you visualize something like that? I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure how to, how to explain that uh, over a podcast episode, but um, how, how does one actually uh, visualize, how do, you, how do you know what the daughter cell is just by visualizing it, it, it whether it's asymmetric division or uh, symmetric division? Well, so one of the things, I mean, the, the, at the end of the experiment, you fix and stain so you know what you ended up with. Right? You look at the trees. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of factors that go into that division. So when I think of asymmetric or symmetric, there's, there's, is it, um, is it a self-renewing, right? So does it make two cells that are going to continue to divide? Or does it start to exit the cell cycle where one or both of the daughters are differentiated progeny? I guess is, is sort of the way I've heard of that. And, and often we can work with cancer cells as well where there's all sorts of weirdness, right? They should be differentiated, but they continue to divide. Um, those cells, are, they're just they're crazy looking. They behave wild. Um, and, and to me, they're all, it's all the same, right? We have, we have just cells over time. The cells are dividing. What do the daughter cells do? Well, what can we measure from them in the image, right? We can look at their behaviors. Are there distinctly different patterns of motion and shape that we see? Different cell types have... Uh, really inherently sort of a narrow range of behaviors, I think, Hmm. um, and and that we've seen many cases. Hmm. And so we can look at those behaviors and say, okay, these these two progeny were different. Um, And again, we can fix and stain at the end. We can interrogate the cells fluorescently, right? Hmm. And try to inquire as to their state as well. Right. Yo, so that's the thing where when you're videoing and watching cells in real time and capturing it every, you know, second or minute and then you reconstruct, you can just at the end of the experiment, like Andy's saying, just stop it. You know, it's just stop it, fix it, stain. And then because you've because you've videoed the whole progression, you can then know at each division at the end what those cells turned into because you have the endpoint stained right and when i'm saying stained for everybody i mean you know that we use specific markers to tell us what kind of cell so we can know is it a stem cell is it a neuron is it a glial cell but then you can just re-watch the video from one cell and watch how that one cell turned into all the cells at the end so so that's 
how they do it. And this, the, the, the videos are amazing. Um, yeah. They're truly amazing because cells are really busy. You know, it's you, <laughs> you, you would think that they are just like these boring, round-looking shapes that kind of will sit there and sit there, and then they turn into two, and then they just turn into four. But these guys are moving all around, you know. They're reaching out. And like Andy said... They really like to be next to each other. They're like humans, you know. No humans don't like to be alone. We like to be around other people and other things. Same thing with cells. And one of the things, and Andy and I were recently talking about this, and and for everyone out there doing this, growing, especially the human cells, they really need to be around, you know, other cells. And so, how the hell do you find one cell amongst a hundred thousand and track it and watch it? And so, this is a real problem uh, for the field because. We know, especially in the nervous system and brain disorder, it's a very early problem. And we want to know, uh, for example, what's going on in the early stages of brain development at the level of the stem cell. So to do that, we got to track a cell, uh, right? And it's really difficult to do. And this is something that Andy's really trying to, you know, really working on it, how, how you can follow that cell. And, and some of the images and stuff are, are, are pretty amazing. And so let me transition now to, to this paper that you, you, and, you and Sally recently published. This is in Stem Cell Reports. One of the things we always talk about with stem cells is the niche. Everyone here is niche. And um, the niche basically is the environment that the cell sits in. You know, The environment will signal to cells and it will instruct them. And the question, there's questioning always, does the stem cell, does, do all stem cells or cells respond to the same signal? Are they intrinsically programmed to do one thing or can they respond differently to, to the same signal and such? So this is, you guys took this approach using different regional uh, stem cells from the anterior and posterior and then you looked at them. Can you go into a little bit more on that study and what you guys found? Yeah, the, the oh, it's just great. It's years, probably five years worth of imaging and analysis and software writing. Um, but what Sally did was to culture cells from the anterior, the front of the cerebral cortex, and the posterior, the, the back of the cerebral cortex. And these are, I guess, all right, so now I'm stepping outside of my wheelhouse, yes, with the biology. Huh. Um, but these, you know, these are parts of the brain that are, that are, they have different shape, they have different function. They're, they're really going to, these stem cells are going to produce very different types of brain tissue once, as they differentiate. And so we looked at these cells relatively early and found that we culture them in identical environments and generation after generation, even after they're out of their natural environment, just raised in a dish, we can follow these things through five, ten rounds of cell divisions and see that there are these very intrinsic differences that remain in the cells, right? So over time, and the, and the differences become more pronounced. So the question is, how do they know? Right. That they're supposed to be, right? If they're being signaled by the environment, then they should be the same because they're being raised in the same environment. Here. Right. But in this case, this, whatever is guiding these cells to develop differently is intrinsic. It's internal to the cell itself because we have two populations, same environment, distinctly different behaviors, right? The cells have different, si- they're, they're different size, right? So the posterior cells are bigger. They move more. So the individual cells, when, and you, you mentioned how dynamic they are, yes, and we're not yet at the point. I mean, I, I can't wait to be able to measure all of these dynamics that we see in the cell. They have processes, and there's just so much going on with these things. But even at the, the level that we're at now, we can look at the shape of the cell, the size, and the motion. And the individual cells are different. And when we consider the cells as a family tree, starting from that first progenitor, so we are able to look at siblings and cousins, 
uh, in comparison between the, the posterior and anterior cells, uh, we see even stronger differences, right? The, the posterior clones produce much, much larger trees. Uh, they have shorter cycle times, which is, uh, of course, those two things are related, right? If you reproduce more quickly, you make more progeny. Right. Um, and the other interesting thing that comes out of this and stuff that we can see, because imaging just shows it to us, we just have to sort of write it down, measure it with the computer and log it all, is that even though that we see these really distinct differences in behavior, there's still a lot of heterogeneity, which is cool. There's uh, cells from the anterior, from the front of the brain, where generally they're smaller, they move less, they produce smaller family trees, um, but there's still this, this very small population of anterior cells that looks almost identical to the posterior cells. Hmm. In that they are larger, faster moving, produce larger trees, um, and and so you know, is that a redundancy? Like what? That that's just a great data point that right. that to get you thinking about how these things work. Yeah. So it, it, one of the papers uh, we ahead, covered in the science roundup was a recent science paper in the adult mouse where they showed that some of this asymmetric uh, segregation uh, is mediated by the endoplasmic reticulum and that this, uh, you know, gets damaged over time. And so you have uh, less of a uh, regeneration capacity in the, in the adult brain over time. And I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of like something like, okay, say we say a cell, a uh, stem cell. Uh, symmetrically divides, produces another one of itself, presumably. And we stain and say, oh, they both say express OCT4, so they look alike. But what what is the resolution? I mean, like an identical twin may look the same as, the, you know, as a brother or sister, but, you you know, obviously they're different people. So, like, what's the resolution? Is it jet- genetically, you know, can, can we go down to the transcriptome or, like, just say that uh, they look the same or they, they you know, I'm just wondering right. what's the resolution in some of these assays? I guess it, it maybe it's a... It's beyond. This is a global. Yeah. No. It, well, I mean, I, I will say this, right? Because you're imaging, you you get a visual look, right? So, uh, you know, what what's imaging resolution, Chris? What do you you know? What do you guys get for for phase images? You're you're talking. I'd have to. I'd want to check the actual images to make sure I use the right numbers. But the resolution is sufficient. You can really see the individual cells. Mm. And and they're not the daughters are ne- you know they're never identical twins right, right. when you look at them in, in, when you watch them in the movie right. daughters right. they they look different right these cells have they're they're very dynamic they change really rapidly and the behaviors are um you know when you when you watch the cells over time they're they're doing their own thing as it were they're not just sort of mindless automaton that are all running the same program and and they look identical. Um, you know, what I'm going to add here is for people out there listening to this and, the, and, and people within the stem cell field and people doing hardcore cell biology understand the advantage to, try to understanding cellular dynamic and behavior in the dish. But for people that are not necessarily hardcore biologists – and by the way, Andy, for a non-scientist, you did a hell of a job at going yeah. through that, uh, those science terms there, by the way. Anyway, so for the people out there that are saying, what the hell – who – what are we talking about here? We're watching cells divide. Like this is so mundane and it sounds, what does that have to do with disease and how is this going to help me out? And what I'll say to that, and I know Andy can, can, can expound on this a little bit more, is that when things are being set up in development, right, when we're just uh, you know, a small bunch of cells in the beginning, that's all that's happening. 
it's a bunch of cells dividing and dividing and dividing in a time sequence. And every so often, the cell will divide and it will stop making more of itself and it will start turning into a nerve cell or a liver cell or a blood cell. And that has to happen at a very distinct you know, time and program. If that program goes bad, goes wrong, goes you know, awry, you have too many divisions that you were supposed to have differentiations, you will not make or have the appropriate brain structure anymore. And that can lead you to just a minor alteration or a spectrum-like disorder. So having a way where we can track cellular biology very detailed to the level of the division is incredibly important, not just in understanding basic biology, but also in disease. So I, I hope I kind of uh, sum that. But Andy, please, I mean, if you, please, you can expound on that a bit. But it's incredibly important to be able to in- track how cells behave. Yeah, here's, here's how I put it. Um, and this is now, so here, here's my perspective as, as an engineer, right? So, I mean, really, my life skill, the, the, what I do is, is to, to understand how things work, right? And to make things work better. And in terms of, uh, in terms of that, right? Engineering, the, the, the first principle, the best way to understand how something works is to hold it up to the light and study it. And that's what we're doing here, right? You literally hold these cells up to the light and take pictures. You need to watch them over time. You need to measure how they develop. And then when you have a disease like cancer or autism, then you want to look for what changes in the way these things are developing. Right. And, you know, microscopes for hundreds of years, we've been taking snapshots of cells through microscopes, and that's no big deal. But, you know, only going back really to the 1970s and and even you know more recently than that, have we started to look at this ability to do time-lapse imaging, right? to watch cells while they're alive, to capture not just pictures but movies of the cells. And then you know, new microscopes are able to capture hundreds of these movies simultaneously for, for hundreds of different cells. So we get this enormously rich view of how the cell is acting. And also, you know, Yusuf, you asked... Are there, is it transcription level? How much resolution, how much detail can we get? And the, the answer is not as much as we'd like, right? Mm. We have to bring together all of these tools. Imaging alone isn't enough. We also, we need to have gene expression profiling and, and all the other tools that you guys bring to bear. But imaging is just that one key piece of the puzzle that really allows us to watch how these things behave over time and to measure that, and then to do that under different conditions, right? So there's development where we're looking at how anterior and posterior stem cells develop, but there's also disease. So uh, how do cancer cells respond to chemo? How do cell cycle uh, changes impact human development? These are really questions that we'd love to know the answer to, and imaging is going to be a great uh, tool in the in our toolboxes we go after those so with this latest paper was there a uh, overall finding or was this more of a descriptive method uh methodology paper as to how to track cells uh in terms of you know the writing of the programs which i'm i'm assuming you did a lot of over the years or is it is is there an overall conclusion as to uh the actions of this be you know this division uh progeny behavior <laughs> Um, yeah, so, I mean, first and foremost, there's the biological finding, right? These cell intrinsic differences between different populations of stem cells. And I think the interesting part of that is, is not just the anterior versus posterior, but the fact that the differences occur over multiple generations and that we're able to measure that. Hmm. Um, 
Another thing that, that came out of this, so there, there's also the open source software, right? So we're, we're building these tools. We, we uh, have a software program that we call Lever for uh, L-E-V-E-R for Lineage Editing and Validation. -er. And uh, the Lever program is, is a, it's free, it's open source, and it's, um, it's not as general purpose as we'd like yet. And, and we're, we know all sorts of ways to improve it and make it better. But if you have images that look like the data that we've processed so far, so that's um, mouse adult and embryonic neural stem cells, that's mouse hematopoietic stem cells, um, we've done some human cancer cells, uh, lung cancer, neuroblastoma. If you have that kind of image data, then the Weaver program is going to be able to process that, mm. segment it, track it, so outline the cells, follow them over time, generate lineage trees, and give you the basis for beginning to do a more in-depth analysis of how these things behave. Um, and that's a big part of it. The other thing that came out of this, I guess the third sort of thing that I really love about this last paper, is one of the problems that we ran into was the, the images. So we get hundreds of images. These, these just They're heavy. You don't transfer these over the Internet very easily. You actually have to send a hard drive. Um, <laughs> wow. The analysis, you know, we build our own computers, and they're, they're big, right? We build big, fast computers here to process the data. And it takes us, uh, it could take a few days to go through a data set. So uh, it's not something you want to run on your laptop. Mm. And then the question of, all right, we get all of these massive quantities of image data, we do all this analysis results, and then what do we do with that, right? We get a nice uh, pie chart. Right, not really a pie chart, but roughly speaking, and and we can just show you the pie chart and show you a movie, and that's sort of historically how uh, image analysis has gone. But one of the things that really struck me over the course of this project was this data is so it's beautiful, it's compelling, it's valuable, it's it offers insight maybe beyond even what we're looking at right now in terms of of this specific question, and so um, we started work on a program we call CloneView. And this is probably one of the coolest things I've ever written. Actually, myself and uh, we had a few undergrad students in the lab working on it. Um, and CloneView is a web viewer. It's an HTML5 application that gives you all of the image data, and it puts it together with the Lever results. So now you can go to this website. You can see all we analyzed 160 clones for this paper. Well, you can see a sort of a, an overview of all 160 clones. We give you a sketch of the lineage tree, and we tell you a little bit about the clones. Uh, when they were collected, all the, all the metadata, the who, what, where, why, when, mm. about the imaging, about the analysis. We know what algorithms were used. We know what human, so we have human validation, right? Because some kinds of errors can be really, really bad. We want to make sure there are no tracking errors. Well, who did the validation? Um, so all the info like that. And you can drill down deeper. So then you can bring up an individual movie and you can look at the clones and you can zoom in. Right? So instead of just watching a movie blindly, you're able to look at it in as much detail as you want. You can turn our segmentation and tracking results on or off. Uh, it's just awesome. Um, it was incredibly useful for me. Even I've, I, you know, my, The lab is, is just up an elevator ride, and it's still just really tough to keep track of all the data. How good is the data? Right. How far along? How much have we actually done? Um, and the the philosophy here is that it's not done until it's in clone view now mm. and at the end of the day we can from any computer any tablet ipad smartphone whatever you can bring up clone view and see the whole scope of the data that we've processed 
That's great. And so what's just so, tremendous. Is that on Drexel's website or your lab's website? Yeah, was? so that's that's uh, right now it's hosted on my lab website. Um, and we published it with the paper. So the clone view results were made public uh, along with the stem cell reports publication. Um, so now all the you know the code is free and open source, and now all the data and the results are, are not only out there, right? Because having segmentation results, tracking results, lineaging results for all that data is is helpful, but it's by itself, it's not really interesting or useful. But having it in a form where you can overlay it on top of the images, you can play them like a movie and just really immerse yourself in the whole thing is tremendous. Um, and yeah, that, there's links to that off my website. That's that's all publicly available. Now. We we can put some of the links, Joseph, up because uh, Andy has some videos that are up that for everybody that is, has never seen these lineage trees, uh, I think when he, when he, when Andy said it looked like a family tree, you know those pedigree yeah. pictures. It's exactly what it is, mm. but it, it it'll start real small, like one, two, and then all of a, towards the end of the tree, it's nuts. There's, there's there's hundreds of cells everywhere, and they're able to track them all. And it's really incredible. So we're gonna put some links up. Everybody out there, just you gotta go check out this vid- these videos. They're they're really cool and they're so informative. And now with this software, the amount of information you're you're, you're garnering is incredible. But, but la- one of the last things I want to talk to you about is, is and ask you a question about is this is you you haven't just helped really in get information from cells, right? I know you've done some work in, in understanding imaging, right? I know you guys have looked at the SVZ and like visualiz- visualization of blood, the vasculature and things like this. So is it a similar approach? You take images taken and then just kind of come up with ways to better see and, and quantitate where cells are relations to other kind of organelles and, and, and the blood vessels and things like this? Because I know we know stem cells like blood vessels a lot and trying to quantitate that and find that. Uh, so, so are you still doing a bit of that and taking these images and checking that out? Yeah. It's, it's, so let me, let me put that in context uh, in, in case you have any engineering listeners. <laughs> um, what you're talking about is, is 3D imaging of sort of intact tissue now, right? So instead of being in vitro in a dish, um, we're absolutely have to be able to image. And we can, the imaging is great, right? So guys like Chris Bjornsson and Sally's lab who capture these absolutely amazing, you know, we call it 5D. It's XYZ, the three spatial dimensions. And then we have time, right, because we're taking movies. And then we have a, a, a lambda or a spectral dimension or the imaging channel, right? So we have one imaging channel can be stem cells. Another imaging channel can be blood vessels. Um, and you can have 6, 8, 12. There's no right. limit as far as I'm concerned. This, the tissue gets a little picky now and again. But So we image these things. We have 3D movies. We have multiple imaging channels. We have time lapse. And yeah, we love this. So it's actually easier for us to work with this stuff computationally when we have 3D compared to 2D. I mentioned like cells will crawl underneath yeah, each yeah. other in 2D and divide. In 3D, you just you have a Z dimension. There's, right. you know. So it's a lot easier to resolve the ambiguity. The challenge with 3D is how do you look at the data? How do you really see it? And when you have multi-channel data, it's, you know, it's 5D. Looking at 5D is hard. Um, so we, we use a lot of computer gaming hardware for that. We, we have some uh, uh, active shutter stereo glasses that on the 10-foot <laughs> monitor just look, or uh, projector, a 3D projector. They look amazing. And it's, it's not expensive. It's not esoteric. It's just super high-quality um, and yeah, so what we've been doing over the last few months and what we're really getting ready to do next is to try to combine our 3D and our 2D tools. We're at the point where we think the software is just sort of ready and we want to make it usable. We want to get it out there. 
Um, the visualization is key, right? So in 3D, the truth is we, we still have data. We have, we're looking at fly wings. We're looking at zebrafish development. We're looking at intact subventricular zones. And the ability to, to put on these glasses and see, um, it's, it's not fake 3D like when you go to the movies where they shoot with two cameras, right? These microscopes, these confocal or two-photon or whatever you want to use, are, are interrogating the tissue in true 3D. And when you see that, with separate signals shown to a left and right eye, like the hardware can enable for us here, it's dynamite. Uh, we're also uh, putting that in the web browser as well. Is another project. So just like the clone view for 2D, we have a version of it in 3D. Uh, the trick there is that you really do need to have a good graphics card to make that fly. So the, on the 3D side, the hardware constraint for the what we call the client—that's you—is is something that that over time everybody will have a good graphics card. But well, until then, I'm looking forward to the Oculus Riff of uh, stem cell uh, visualization <laughs> yeah. uh, coming hey, in the know, future. Hey, awesome. I want to ask you real real quick. This is really really a random question, but you know, 3D TVs that are out on the market. You know, I tried watching them and they just don't really do it for me. Are they really true 3D? Like, is this is this where we are with 3D TV, or are we going to get a little bit no, better so, here? Um, you know, you know I. All right, here you go. The only thing I've ever seen, so like in terms of 3D movies, I, I prefer to watch a movie in 2D. Yeah, me personally. too, man. Me like too. the 3D doesn't do anything for me. Uh, the only exception to that is the, I believe it's the second or third Jackass movie was shot in 3D. <laughs> and I, I say this like from, from an artistic perspective, that's the only thing I've seen that makes good use of the 3D. Oh, oh that's man. funny. Well, speaking of probably- funny, uh, let's, let's try and wrap this up with a, do you have any funny stories you want to share with our audience? So <laughs> it's, you know, the, the work is so fun, but I have two stories. I have two, and, and I don't know that either one of them are particularly funny. But I'll tell you one I mentioned before. I, I made that transition at some point early in my career from, from hardware. You know, I was an electrical engineer, and I went back to grad school as a computer engineer, more software. And I was working at Intel in Santa Clara. And it was, it was my first job right out, of, right out of school with my bachelor's, and I was just on top of the world. I, was in, I moved to California from Troy, New York, and <laughs> I was the man. It's a big and move. We got a new – I just sort of had figured out I was a product engineer. I was working on a, a microprocessor team, and we just got a new – they had just manufactured a new stepping. So they'd gone to a new process for manufacturing the microprocessors, um, and it came from Singapore. We got the first – not from uh, Thailand. We got the first – two dozen chips came in a tray and they handed me this tray with two dozen microprocessors in it. And I would find out later that the way the accounting works on these microprocessors at Intel is they take the cost of development and they divide that by how many they've manufactured and that's the current cost or value of each chip. And so we had 24 and and millions of dollars in development costs across these 24. And so I take this tray of chips down to the... uh, down to the lab, and you, you plug them into the evaluation board, and you get this big thermal arm that you put over them, and you run them hot, and you run them cold, and you measure the performance, see when they fail, characterize them, you do it for the two dozen chips, and, and then we know, does the, is the fabrication working well? And I'm just, I'm having a great day, and I turn around and catch the tray of chips with my elbow. And it's just in slow motion horror <laughs> as they bounce across. So I'm picking these things up from under the machine, and they've got like dust bunnies in them. And, <laughs> I'm like that's it, and that's how my career ends. Oh <laughs> man! I, I held it together. I was like, "All right, I got to do the right." So I, I I just marched up to my boss and I I handed him the chip and I and, and he was so nice and he said, "We're just not going to talk about this. <laughs> I'm gonna we'll take care of this." And 
I remember telling my dad that story, and he's saying, maybe you should think about software. (laughs) (laughs) No more hardware. Wait, so once they once they hit once they get dirty, it's it's done. Well, the the pins are bent. I don't know if they're wrong. Oh man! To be honest, I was never asked to characterize the chips again. Okay. Um, and I knew actually I did know I was going to end up doing software anyway, so, so I went back to grad school for for personal reasons as well. But um, were you wearing one of those Intel space suits uh, when you were doing? No, this? Okay. it's not in a bunny suit because it was it was the chips were all manufactured, they were all good to go, and okay. the room, it wasn't a clean room, right? As evidenced by the dust bunnies that the right. chips came out covered in. But I, 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 then, I, yeah, go I ahead, was go there. Ahead. One other story that again I don't know how funny it is, but um, I the first few times, so you know, working with. Sally and her image data, right? We're looking, we started off really looking at embryonic neural stem cells. Um, and then we started getting this, these really fun movies of adult neural stem cells. And I, I kept getting, you know, I, I like when I give a talk, like uh, a seminar or something, I, I try to be light and, and keep it fun. But I, I noticed I was getting a lot of snickers where I didn't really understand why. And eventually someone pointed out that I was, uh, that my, my, introduction to the talk said you know i'm going to show these i'm going to start off by showing some some embryonic movies and then i'm going to finish up at the end i'm going to show you some really exciting adult movies <laughs> and it was probably three or four talks went by before i and i didn't put it together someone actually had to line me out on that so that's um, really great so uh, that's funny check out my adult movies well on that note for anybody who, who doesn't know uh andy this is andy cohen you can go check out some of his adult movies and uh some of his embryonic movies uh, we'll put some links up it's really truly fascinating for even even for the non-scientist out there i really urge you to to look at them because it, it's they're they're aesthetically beautiful just to watch a cell and how it how it kind of and then they pseudo color them so you can see all yeah. the colors it's yeah. really really beautiful um the, the papers and stem cell reports we talked about it on the last episode uh Andy, it's always a pleasure to to talk with you and uh appreciate you coming on uh the stem cell podcast as an engineer to to fill us in on what you're doing and how us as stem cell biologists and other scientists can can benefit from it. So thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Joseph. All right. Take, All right, take care. care. All right, guys. Awesome, man. Yeah, that was a good interview. Uh, check out the videos online. They'll sort of give you an idea of what we were talking about because that's a huge part of it, the vis- visualization. Yeah. So. It really is, and they really do look like like family trees, you know, yeah. with like the parents at the top and then the kids at the bottom. It really looks exactly like that, and it's just for cells. And you you'll notice if you look at the videos at some point, it just explodes. Like you have one, and you have two, four, eight, and then there's just like cells everywhere. And uh, Andy has done a tremendous job and coming away coming up with a way to track them. In my naivety, I called him a scientist, and he corrected me. Yost and said yeah. he wasn't a scientist; he was an engineer. And my brother is an engineer, and What's up, Ann out there? Um, Ant is an engineer, and I'm like, I'm like, I called him an engineer, a scientist, and he was like, they're not scientists, we're engineers. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, sorry, man. Woo. I know. You ever um, hear like the president talk about the STEM fields? And I'm always thinking stem cells because obviously we're biased, but I'm like, stem, oh, science, technology, engineering. Engineering. And, yeah, I'm like, oh, you guys are your own sort of... Yeah, man. They're re- <laughs> I think it's really... I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know that. I wasn't trying to insult anyone. All right. Anyway, so let's... Uh, Yosef, my favorite part of the rec- recording session is when Yosef gives me the list of rant topics because uh, I love to hear them. Yeah. So we have another uh, useful uh, but yet 
probably pointless uh, rant. To <laughs> yeah. Do. So, so let, the, let's let's get into the, it. This one is. I think everybody can relate to this. This one is on double dipping uh, in say like hummus or blue cheese when you got like some chicken wings and you're you you're eating with a bunch of friends and uh, double dipping. Now, I I I have to admit I'm not such a stickler about this because I don't know. I I've I think I've you know i've got a way around this so say you you've got like uh some hummus and a uh piece of bread that you're gonna dip into the hummus if i dip this piece of bread in and uh eat one end what i'll sometimes do is turn it around and use the other side to double dip with uh so as to not do the biting side and that still pisses my friends off they're like dude no way that is double dipping get out of here <laughs> so i so you're so you so okay i don't like double dipping it's a famous seinfeld episode by the yeah, way double yeah. dip the chip um I, I don't like double dipping obviously i think the concept is gross however <laughs> i feel like there are much more egregious things out there than a double dip chip um you know what i find to be worse than the double dip i find the bag the shared bag of chips is worse because what happens is like if someone's eating doritos and this happens now that i have a kid because I've, I've i've gotten sick from kids before because kids are just gross they'll they'll you'll reach into the bag of chips and you'll put the chips in your mouth and you suck on your fingers and everything and you oh go back yeah, into yeah the chip. Yeah. and then when you're in the bag you don't just you know, everyone feel. I know everyone out there feels around for the good Dorito or for the <laughs> yeah. good one. You know what yeah, I mean? You're yeah. not going for the little one. So you're like you're fingering through all the chips, and then you grab the ones you want. You put them back in your. So I find that worse. Now I am a flip over guy, a dipper too. I don't find a problem with the flip over. Oh wow! You know, like you you bite you bite it and then you turn it around and you dip the other side. Yeah, but I could see how people would complain about that too, because you know the bacteria from your fingers are now on that uh, side of the, you know. So oh, I, I, yeah, I, I see I how think about it. <laughs> you might as well just dip your finger in, in the hummus and uh, go crazy. But so, what's the appropriate etiquette then? You just because one I dip is just stupid. You're I, supposed to scoop. Can I scoop my own hummus out of the of the vat and use that and go to town? You know, with hummus it's harder. With blue cheese, what I'll do is I'll dip the first like wing, and then you know sometimes you gotta get the other side of the wing especially with the the not the drumstick part but that like flat whatever piece of chicken the wingy wing yeah there's two forms right so not the drumstick but that other form so the other side will need to get you know some some blue cheese and what i'll do is uh i i guess at this point the right thing to do is just throw it out but um what i'll do is i'll take the blue cheese and pour it onto the other side so i guess you could pour it but with hummus you can't really pour hummus so i guess just throw out your your piece of bread or whatever chip you got going on to be politically correct or, or you know you can you can you can serve things with a knife or some sort of device that allows you to spread the stuff uh on it um but I don't know, man. We've come a long way in society. We haven't figured out the double dip. The double dip <laughs> will be with us forever. I'm sorry. To, I hate to... I mean, no one's ever tested this directly, right? Like, if you were to take blue cheese and you... Maybe blue cheese is a bad example because it has a lot of, like, uh, like mold in there already, right? <laughs> Let's say you were to take hummus and I, I was to do, like, a bacterial assessment pre-putting out for the for my for my party. And then at the end, I take a swab and I run it and I grow it up. 
You think I would significantly find more bacteria in there? Definitely, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You could all these bacteria studies. They 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 culture them. There's bacteria everywhere. There's no way of avoiding it. Which is why I'm kind of in the pro double dip as long as you flip around camp. But I mean, yeah, I I've never been on a cruise ship that got like Norwalk disease. Ooh, so yeah. oh, uh, maybe I'm a, I'm a little naive in this in department because I can't correlate any sort of foodborne illness to a uh, double dipping but anyhow i i can i can tell you the last thing i'll say is i got the stomach virus and i'm convinced it was from each sharing a bag of chips with like i was at the beach with my family and my my ne- my nieces and nephews were there and they were getting after these bag <laughs> of chips and one of them had just gotten over from the stomach virus which i didn't know about and i got the stomach virus and then like it just waved through my family so uh yeah, double dip can be risky, but I'm not willing to I'm not willing to kick people out of my home and and actually do what would you point would you point it out to somebody? Would you say, "Hey, I saw you, please don't do that?" Oh yeah, my friends, uh at least with friends, they're they're pretty cruel about it. Somebody I didn't know so much, I don't think I would confront them. I don't them. think I would either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just probably wouldn't eat it anymore, but I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah, say it. Yeah, so. Anyway, all right, we don't want to double dip over time here. <laughs> yeah. So, let's uh let's end 54. Nice job, yo. So we will uh, catch everybody out there in Stem Cell Podcast land on Stem Cell Awareness Day for episode 55. All right, my brother? All right. Talk to you later. All right, man.